You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. Well, I just want to start out first say hello. Uh, thank you for being here today. But I, I just got to tell you, you know, the, I was thinking about this while you're talking up here, Pastor Brian, is the book of Romans says um, to outdo one another in showing honor. So it's like a competition. So here, let me, let me say this, cause it could be kind of awkward when you go to churches and you know, you're supposed to say something about somebody or they're supposed to say something about you or what it's just can be so cheesy. Um, but he really, this guy really is one of my best friends in the whole world and Heather and I mean, you guys are unbelievable. Uh, so I, I can't really, I can't beat that. And you like really thought through that one. That was pretty strong. Um, <clears throat> You know what, the Bible, the Bible teaches us a lot about honor and it can get weird. It can, you can overvenerate spiritual leaders and idolize them. And, you know, we make saints out of living people. You know, the Catholic church kind of got it right with uh, creating saints. One of the qualifications to become a saint, to be honored as a saint is you had to be dead. Uh, the, evan- the evangelical church, we make saints about living people and it goes to their head. Anyway, that's another sermon. <clears throat> so you can, you can get honor really weird and and it can be weird and you'll idolize the leader. And then whenever they, you find out they're human, the one you idolize, you'll demonize. And the church has been, you know, his, historically, we've been pretty good at that. Um, but I do believe there is a value of honor. And what you fail to honor, you eventually lose. Many people lose their marriage because they fail to honor their wife. They fail to honor their husband. Your kids begin to hate you because you fail to honor them and value them. And so I do think there's a healthy place of honor. And so I just, I do want to take a moment to honor your pastors. And, um, and I was praying, I didn't say this in the last service, um, because your moment of like celebrating me was so good. I felt like you beat me there. So I thought, God, you got to help me. I got to one up Brian here and I may not be able to, but I was praying and this is to be genuine. This is what I felt. You know, Jesus said about himself that he was the good shepherd. And so we know that he's the good shepherd. Um, but I really, those two words I heard about both of you guys, good shepherds, you're good shepherds. You're so good. You're, you're, you are, you are phenomenal pastors. A shepherd is just a pastor in, in scripture and, uh, a good shepherd lays their life down for the sheep. And you guys have done that. You do it over and over again. A good shepherd also, you know, you know, that scripture says that they, they know them by name. I walk these halls out here and you guys know everybody's name. And some of you don't put them on the spot and be like, you tell me my name. You remember my name? Like, that's an awkward thing to do. Don't do that. <clears throat> but you do your best to care for every individual. You don't see crowds. See, shepherds do not see, she- good shepherds do not see crowds. They see people. They see individuals. And you guys see individuals. And you love individuals. You care for individuals. The people on your team, the people of this community. And you've never met a stranger. Every person, you see their potential and their value. And you guys call it out of them. And I just honor you today. You guys are phenomenal pastors. And it is an honor that Jennifer and I, we get to serve you. And I get to serve in this capacity here as an overseer. Because this is an amazing church. And you guys need to know this. That, you know, I said this last service. That without vision, people perish. You ever heard that scripture? But listen to me. The converse is true. Without people, a vision perishes. And so your pastors can have a great vision, the leadership, the staff can have a great vision, but without great people to, to fund and to carry out that vision, the vision will fall flat. And I can tell you this, God has got a big vision for this city and for this region and for the world. He's got a, a local and a global vision for this world and Queen City plays a huge role in that. You need to know that you're a part of that. And I want to honor you as well for your, your faithfulness in giving, your faithfulness in serving, your faithfulness in investing into the kingdom of God because God's truly using you to make a difference. And I want to say something personally. Uh, ask Pastor Brian permission to do this. But, you know, when you guys uh, give uh, faithfully tithes, offerings, all that kind of stuff, when you do that, a portion of that goes into church planning. 
And one of the things that I do as sidecar leader is I come alongside church planters, help church planters train them, assess their readiness, and we send them out and they plant churches, and then I continue to coach them alongside them. But you guys, every time that you give, a portion of that, that gift goes towards church planting in North America. And to date, we've planted 1,040 life-giving churches just like this church. And just a couple, maybe a month or two ago, we trained another hundred church planters. And so you need to know that, that you are personally investing into something that is literally transforming and changing North America. And these are multiplying churches, which means that, that not only do they get planted, but they begin to give to plant more churches and then they plant more churches. And so it's an unbelievable, I call it E-R-O-I. It's an eternal return on investment. And you're making that. But here's, here's the personal thing I want to say to you is that you, you didn't even know this. You didn't even know this. But um, your pastors found out that my brother is planting a church in South Louisiana. That's where I'm originally from. I'm, I'm a Cajun, then I moved to Texas, became a cowboy, then I moved to California, became crazy. And, uh, and then I moved to Nashville and the Lord got me out of Egypt. Anyway, um, I digress. But uh, your pastors found out that my brother and his wife, Summer, were planting a, a church this fall in South Louisiana in the community that we grew up in. And, uh, and when they found out about it, they prayed and they, 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 they said, God, what's the amount that we should give? And your church, you did this. You gave a very significant gift to plant a church called the Table Church that will be planted in South Louisiana that will be just like this church, serving the community, loving and caring for people. And I wanted to say on behalf of my family and the community of origin that I grew up in that needs a church like this, thank you for your generosity. Come on, can we clap our hands? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, guys. And to the trustees, if you're here, thank you, guys. The board of directors, thank you for approving that because Brian can't just make those kind of decisions, can you? Uh, if you have your Bibles, go with me over to the Gospel of Luke. And as you do that, they're going to put up on the screen as well. Uh, my sons are traveling with me. They're like my associate pastors. They like, that's my entourage. They're with me. My youngest son, he's in kids ministry, Nixon. He's nine years old. He's like a little poet. He likes to write poetry. And I told him back there, I was like, hey, you're going to write some poetry in here? He's like, I'm going to drop some lines on him today. But, uh, and then my son over here, he's 12 years old. Liam, Liam, stand up really quick. There you go right there. Look, clap your hands, show your love. He's, um, you want to do the gritty? You want to do the gritty real quick? He's my pastor of gritty. You don't even know what the gritty is, do you? Anyway, he's a huge Cincinnati Bengals fan. You know why? Because of Joe Burrow. And uh, yeah, you guys did not pray hard enough at the Super Bowl. I'm just telling you that. I did my part. I spoke on miracles last year and we were supposed to be believing and I don't know what happened, but anyway. Um, I've been married now for 17 years, uh, and actually May will make 17 years, and uh, we have three beautiful kids, 12, uh, Liam's 12, Nixon's nine, and then we have a little girl that's three years old, and uh, I bring greetings on behalf of my wife and, and my daughter. Uh, but Luke chapter 7, we're going to dig into this for just a bit. There's some really great verses, but let me tell you where this originated from. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was asked to speak at this church in the Bay Area. And they were in a particular teaching series uh, called What Jesus Stood For. I thought it was an interesting title. So I asked them, I said, you know, what exactly is that? What, what are you guys trying to accomplish here? And they said this. They said, you know, we just feel like specifically in the Bay Area, but really I believe this is probably worldwide, that the church has a bad reputation. And, and, and it actually, it's, it's, it, it makes spirituality or Christianity or God have a bad reputation. Like, like the church is doing some bad PR for Jesus. And, and in the Bay Area, I knew that to be true. If I told somebody I was a Christian, I mean, it's instant debate. If I told somebody I was a pastor, I thought I was going to be stoned. I mean, and not with weed, but with actual stones. <clears throat> and, 
and it's just <clears throat> because the church has just not maybe done the best. And, and in the Bay Area, I knew this for sure, but I think it's probably, probably at least nationwide, probably worldwide. The church is known for what we, we stand against, not for what we stand for. And, 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 and so he wanted to highlight what was it that Jesus stood for? Because you and I now, we are the physical representation of the body of Christ. That's what the church is actually called. We're the body of Christ. So we're the physical representation of the heart, the mind, the thoughts, the affections, and the desires of God towards humanity. In the earth today, that's who we are. And uh, the reality is, is that the church many times has misrepresented Jesus. Would you agree with that? Many times uh, we get fixated on certain issues. And, and listen, make no mistake about it. There are certain things that we should stand against. Why? Because we see how it destroys human, humanity and human flourishing. And we should stand against things. Jesus stood against things. He, he did. He would take a stand against things. Primarily, he stood against religion and religious people. And as I begin to think about this and study this, uh, there was a particular passage that I was, uh, I was brought to because I really believe we're at a place in this cultural moment. We're in this, this moment where we have an opportunity as the church of Jesus Christ to really stand for certain things and to, to stand up for certain people and to, to, to literally be the, the physical expression of Jesus Christ in the earth today. And I believe that as we take our place, as we step into that, man, I'm telling you, this is going to usher in one of the greatest moves of God that we've ever seen. I really believe it with all my heart. And so the question is, what did Jesus stand for? I'm going to give you this uh, passage here. We'll start right here in chapter seven of Luke, verse 33. It says this, Jesus is actually responding to some religious people. And he says, for John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine. And you say he's possessed by a demon. The son of man, which was one of the things that Jesus would call himself at times. The son of man, on the other hand, feast and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How many are you thankful for tax season? Amen. I'm not. I almost took that out of the text right there just because I was like, I'm just not feeling it right now, tax season. But Jesus, he was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. Now, oftentimes we don't like to admit that we're a sinner. We like to just say that we just make mistakes, right? But making a mistake is like, is like forgetting to move the decimal to a certain part in, you know, when you're doing math. And the Bible doesn't call us mistakers, it calls us sinners. Like we're all sinners. Romans 3 says that we're all sinners and we fall short of God's glorious standard. That's just who we are. We're all sinners. We're, we're not good people that occasionally do bad. We're actually bad people that occasionally do good. We are natural born sinners. Listen, if there's any parents in the house and you have kids, listen, you know this to be true. You did not have to teach them how to be disobedient, did you? It's in them. It's in us. We have a natural bent towards us. We are natural born sinners. We're not good people that occasionally do bad. We are bad people that occasionally do good. We are sinners and we need a savior because we cannot save ourselves. Thank God for his grace. Because of the grace of Jesus, listen to me, every saint has a past and every sinner can have a future. That's just the truth. This is part of the gospel. It's part of the gospel. I want you to look at the person sitting next to you really quick, just to, just to kind of work this out. Say, I am a sinner. Just tell them that. Look at the other person and say, I know that you're a sinner. I know that you are. I know you are. Some of you just felt liberated with that. Have you, ever, have you ever been embarrassed or ashamed to be associated with a certain thing or a certain group of people? Some of you are like, yes, my family, my family. Can't go in public with them anywhere. You know, can't go to a restaurant, they act crazy. Um, I think it's interesting because Jesus 
was called this by the religious people of his day. This, this, he's a friend of sinners. He was called this to discredit him, to discredit him as a spiritual leader, as a rabbi and as a teacher, as a representative of God. They would call him this so that they could discredit him and that they could diminish his influence in the ministry that he was doing in the areas that he was teaching and preaching in. And I think it's so interesting that the people that were supposed to be the most religious, they despised Jesus. And the people that were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. And isn't that interesting that today, in the modern day Christendom, that the people that are irreligious or non-religious, that are nothing like us, they don't feel safe to come to spaces and places of worship. And they feel like they're going to be judged because of maybe their lifestyle or judged because of their background or judged because of the way that they dress or the way that they look. Isn't that interesting that the people that were nothing like Jesus, they actually like Jesus. Maybe if we could get a good picture of why, what was it about Jesus that was so attractional and so beautiful that the people that were the most broken, they would come to him and they felt safe around him. They would even go to a dinner table with him. They would invite him to their wedding. What was it about Jesus that made people that were nothing like him, like him? You know, I'll never forget flying back from the Dominican Republic from a little ministry trip in probably 2004, 2005. And we got detoured through New York and was trying to get back to New Orleans. And um, we get off the plane there. And man, I still had, I just had like clothes that we were wearing like in the Dominican weather. And it's in the middle of winter in New York. I'm like in Bahama shorts with snow, like a, like a foot up, you know. And I'm just freezing to death. And I, I held this cab and the cab pulls up. And I get in the car and this big burly guy is the driver. And I will never forget his name, his face, and his accent. Oh, his accent was so good. He goes, "Say, guys, where you guys just going? And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be good. I was like, man, what is your name? He goes, my name's Frankie, Frankie from the Bronx. <clears throat> and I said, man, my name's Jason. This is Richie. And uh, here's where we're going. And so we start to trek away. And uh, he said, so where are you guys coming from? I said, we're coming from the Dominican Republic. He said, oh, what were you doing there? A little vacation? I said, no, we're actually, <clears throat> this is always makes me nervous now when I say this. I was like, we're actually, we're ministers, we're pastors. And uh, we're coming back from a ministry trip. And he goes, oh, okay, ministry trip. I got a story about church. I like how he said that too, church. <clears throat> I said, tell me about it. I love hearing people's stories. There was, a, there was a rabbinical saying that said, the shortest distance between God and man is just a story. So tell your story. So he starts to tell this story and I'm leaning in. I'm just like, I bet he's going to tell some unbelievable story about how he came to faith in Christ. It's going to be awesome. And he starts telling me this story about how he was married and had children and a career and just went through some really big challenges in life and began to battle addiction and found himself uh, living on the streets, lost his wife, lost his kids, lost his job, became addicted to, uh, to heroin. And he said for years, I think he maybe said 15, 12 to 15 years, he lived on the streets in New York. And he said his life was just a mess, riddled with crime. And he said, I did things you, you could not even imagine to feed my addiction. He said, and there was, came a day where I was just like, I can't keep doing this. I'm going to die if I keep living like this. He hit rock bottom. It just so happened that a Christian found him and invited him to church the next day and said, I'll come pick you up. I'll bring you to church. So he says, fine, I'll do it. I'm desperate. He goes to this church and he said he could not stop sobbing and weeping. He couldn't even wait to the end of the sermon. He ran to the front of the altar and he fell down on his knees and he just began to cry. And some people prayed for him and he said he, he gave his life to Jesus. 
He said then within three days he relapsed and he disappeared for the next few weeks and he just kept using every day, had to steal stuff to pay. I mean, it was just a mess. And he said, he said I, I cannot keep living like this. So he goes back to the church and he said, but it was different when I went back this time. He said, they knew where I'd been. They could smell where I'd been. They could see where I had been. He said, but unlike the first time he said, he said, man, he goes, they actually escorted me out of the church. He said, I went back on the streets and for the next three to five years, I struggled with my addiction. And he said, and I, I finally got to that place again where I was like, I cannot keep living like this. He said, something's got to change. He said, but there's no way. And I can't even use the words that he said here. But he said, there's no way, fill in the blank, that I would ever go back to that place. So he joined Narcotics Anonymous. He said over the next few years, he would go and he would get clean and he would relapse. And he would go and he'd get clean and he'd relapse. And over and over again, for a couple of years, this happened. And he said, but, but NA was different from the church. He said, when I relapsed and I went back, they did not point their fingers at me. They circled their chairs around me. They wrapped their arms around me and they wept with me. They prayed with me and they helped me get back on my feet. And this is what he said. I've been clean now for five years. And maybe if the church was more like NA, I'd be there today. That's a problem. That's a problem. As a church, we've got to be people of grace. You see, listen to me. Grace is the face that love wears when it encounters imperfection. But here's what the church has done historically. We have, we have been dogmatic to truth at the expense of grace. And then we swing the pendulum the other way. And then we, we have hyper grace at the expense of truth. And what it looks like is this. I have seen this in many religions or many denominations that we hold, we're so dogmatic about our truth. We do this. We hold both hands up. We want nothing to do with that sin. And we want nothing to do with this, this sinner. And you need to clean your life up before you can come and, and, and partake with us and fellowship with us. No, no, no. Away, away, away. This is rejection. This is rejection. And it's a perverted, a perverted and distortion um, reality of truth. It's truth says we have a righteous standard. Stay away, stay away. But then the pendulum swings at the, at the, uh, under the label of inclusivity and acceptance, which is really just perverted and distorted grace and opens our arms wide like this. And we say all are welcome and all behaviors and lifestyles are welcome. But the picture of Jesus is more like this. All people are welcome. My arms are open. And one hand is up like this saying, but there is a standard of truth. And we hold a conviction to truth and a conviction of grace because we understand that if we don't hold this, your life will never change and you'll continue in the cycle of brokenness. And Jesus, according to the gospel of John, John chapter one, when he came down, he was, listen, he was the personification, the embodiment of both grace and truth. So the church now as the physical representation of Christ in the earth today, we don't have to choose truth or grace. They're not in competition. They actually complement one another beautifully. We can speak the love, we can speak the truth in love. We can wrap our standards around a posture with a posture of grace towards people and be patient with people in their process and walk with them on their journey. And because Jesus, he, he, because he was such a beautiful balance of these two things, I believe that's what drew people to him. But make no mistake about it, listen to me. This is important for you to understand. Jesus was a friend of sinners and yet he never sacrificed the content of his character or the clarity of his message. This is what a life-giving church does, by the way, is that we can have grace for all people, but we never compromise the content of our character 
or the clarity of our message. We don't have to, we don't have to pit grace and truth against each other, but we can actually hold truth and grace like this and we can love and serve and bless all people. And we do it from this place, not because, listen to me, not because we've arrived, but we're just one beggar telling another beggar where we found the crumbs. We understand that we were broken, we were lost, we were blind, we were screwed up and messed up and our issues had issues. And if it were not for his grace, where would we be? And we hold that posture towards people and we're patient with people. And that's what I love about Jesus. The particular passage that we read, it, we read with those two verses, you would think that as this, this, this phrase is thrown out there that you're a friend of sinners, that, that Luke, the doctor, that is precise with his words, you would think that he would follow up that criticism of Jesus being a friend of sinners with something to counter it, to prove it wrong, but he actually, he does something so incredible. He actually tells a story to prove it right, that Jesus truly is a friend of sinners. Says this afterward in verse 36, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation and when he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus, Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an ex exquisite flask made of alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with her tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. And over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. When Simon saw what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. I don't know if you and I, in 2022, truly grasp how scandalous this story is, how intense this story, imagine with me for a moment, like I'm not a rabbi, I'm just a pastor. I'm a sidecar leader, but imagine with me for a moment because Jesus is the traveling rabbi that's traveling around and he's teaching. So imagine me, I'm the guest speaker this weekend. And Pastor Brian says, before you speak Sunday, we're gonna do a dinner Saturday night at my house. And uh, I'm gonna invite some people from the church. They're gonna come over. I'm gonna invite the board of directors, the trustees, they're gonna come over and we're gonna have a great, great meal. I want you to come. You're gonna be the guest of honor, Jason. Now, here's the thing. I feel bad making you the bad guy, Brian. So David's going to be the bad guy. I don't know where, David's the bad guy. David's the host, okay? I'm the guest. David invites me in. I come in and I sit down at the, the, the seat of honor. I'm the guest. And all of you are kind of sitting on the peripheral kind of areas of it. And David's sitting right across from me. And he's just like, you know, begins to ask me questions. This is a picture of the Greco-Roman symposium where they would do these long dinners and discussions. And they would talk about complex theological matters and complex issues of life. And so we're having this conversation over some baked fish, got a little hummus action, maybe a little grape leaves. Let's go. And we're just, we're, some of y'all getting hungry right now. You're like, wrap this up. And so David and I are having this conversation. All of you are listening in. The board of directors are like taking notes. This is really good. This is a good rabbi, you know, everything. And all of a sudden, uninvited, the door opens and all of you know this woman that's walking in. She is known in the Queen City, not the church, but the city. She is no, she's a woman of the streets. She, she's a woman of the streets. 
either she's a prostitute or she's just been promiscuous and she's, she gets around. That's what the text is saying. They all know. She is a notorious, notoriously promiscuous woman in their community. And she walks in. She doesn't go to David. She doesn't go to any of you. Some of you may be sweating it at that moment. Like, please don't come to me. But she comes to the traveling teacher. And every, imagine how awkward this is. She walks in uninvited guest. She has no place at the table. To a Jewish man or to a Jewish woman of this time, the only people that get a seat at your table are family and friends that you have accepted and you've received. Because you have to be clean to be at the table. To a Jewish person, it's very important that you are clean to be at the table because the table is an extension of the altar. And this is a religious man's house. And this woman walks in uninvited and she gets down on her knees at Jesus' feet. He's leaning into the table and his feet are, he's laying down and his feet are probably behind him. And she gets down on her knees and she begins to weep and cry and her tears begin to wash over his feet. Dirty from the dust, from traveling and teaching and ministering to people. She begins to weep and cry and wash his feet. She lets down her hair, which ancient Eastern times, a woman would only do that in the bedroom. You don't do that in public. She lets down her hair. She begins to dry his feet. She breaks open this alabaster jar that most scholars say is probably a year worth of salary. Most expensive thing she probably has. She opens it and she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus. And in this moment, this religious guy, God, I get so mad when I read this text, I want to fight him. This religious guy, he starts having these thoughts. We know what kind of woman she is. And obviously we know what kind of man he is because he knows her. Obviously, wait, there's no way he's a problem. He's thinking this and in just his thoughts, Jesus responds to his thoughts. How gangster is that? (laughs) I love Jesus. He's so bad. He's like, in the middle of this moment, he just looks up like, okay, Simon. And he looks at Simon. He says, Simon, I have a word for you. How many don't want to be Simon in this moment? (laughs) Simon, I have a word for you. Now look at the arrogance. I know that we're reading into the text, but when you look at the original language, it is there. There is so much religious pride in Simon's heart. He is so arrogant. He thinks he's not only better than, than the woman, the harlot, he thinks he's better than Jesus. That's religious pride. He looks at him and he says, I have a word for you, go ahead. Look at go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. Right then, I would slap him. Jesus is so much, thank God for Jesus and Jesus isn't Jason, right? So he says, this is a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000 and the other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would ever be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave them all that they had owed. Tell me, Simon, which of the two debtors would be the most thankful Which one would love the banker the most? Simon answered, I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus said. Then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Don't you see her? You see, Simon thought that 
that he was going to question the character of Jesus. And Jesus has now in his brilliance and his Socratic method has flipped the script. And he said, you're the person in question here. Don't you see her? Don't you see her pain? Don't you see her? You don't even know what she's been through. That's what he's saying. Don't you see her? See, religious people don't actually see, they see people, but they don't see people. Have you ever seen something so long you no longer see it anymore? He says, I suppose it would be the one, right? The one has been forgiven the most. Don't you see her, Jesus says. Don't you see her? She is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. You know what he's saying to him? What an accusation. The harlot has become the host. The host has the heart of a harlot and the harlot has the heart of a host. He exposes the shamefulness of, of his own heart. He says, don't you see this woman kneeling here? She's done for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet, which was a custom. This was just a customary thing to do. You didn't even do that. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and my feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all her many sins. Notice Jesus does not compromise here. He calls it sin. See, grace doesn't make allowance for sin. It makes allowance for sinners. He calls it sin. It is sin. It's grace and truth, right? He's, he's showing her radical grace, but he's also holding truth. She has been forgiven of her many sins. This is why she has shown me much extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very, very little. You see, there's a couple propositions I'd make to you. Number one is that the grace of God makes space for sinners at the table. My, my admonishment to you is that you would, make, you would have the great, enough grace in your life to make space for people in your life that are not like you. Do you have space at your table, so to speak, with people that vote different from you, that think different from you, that look different than you? that have a different economic status than you? Do you have space for people that are not like you or is your whole world this homogenous world? See, because God has called us to the world to have grace for the world and to have big hearts swollen with gratitude and grace and love for people that are broken, that need a seat. Listen to me, there are people in this city that need a seat at this table. And it's you and I, these purveyors of grace and the love and the kindness and the mercy of God as we stand for people, as we stand for people in their brokenness and we say, come to the table. This is a picture of who Jesus was. This is why the people that were nothing like him liked him. May we have space for people that are broken to come to our table. The second proposition I'd make to you is this. You should notice, I think it's worth noticing that the word assume is mentioned twice in the text regarding Simon. And it's this, he's making assumptions He's making assumptions about the type of woman that she is. He's making assumptions about the type of person that Jesus is. He's making assumptions that he doesn't need grace. When you make assumptions, you've heard the saying, it makes, well, you know, okay? My mom used to say that to me. He's making a lot of assumptions. And this is the point I think that, that Jesus would probably tell us. Religious people have a problem with grace because they assume they don't need it. 
Most religious people, they think they need grace to get saved, and now it becomes their, their moral performance that makes them pious and religious and better than all those other people. But I think a true follower of Jesus understands that we don't get the gospel and then go into, go into deeper things. We simply get the gospel and go deeper into the gospel. We receive grace to be saved and now that same grace sustains us and carries us. And if we ever get to a place where we've been able to get things out of our life and we're standing in a place where our life more reflects the character and conduct of Jesus, it wasn't by our own efforts, but it was the grace of God. You see, grace, listen to me, make no mistake about it. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. You see, we can't earn acceptance from God. It's only by his grace, but then his grace fills our life. And then through effort, we begin to work with him in the rhythms of grace. And we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we cannot get to the place where we become religious and pious and think that we've got ourselves here because we pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps. Because at that point, we'll begin to posture ourselves towards a dying and broken world gracelessly and forget what it was like to be lost and broken. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget. You know, the moment I realize whenever I'm forgetting what I'm forgetting about the grace of God, I'm forgetting about what he's done for me. I, I begin to notice it in my worship. Is that I can stand in a worship service with my thumb in my pocket or my arms crossed. I, I, can, I, can, I can listen to worship music and it doesn't move me anymore. You know, every time when I do that, I go this, I, I go, my passion is shaped by my pardon. So maybe I've forgotten my pardon. Maybe I'm not worshiping and being grateful for the grace of God because I've forgotten what it was like to be broken, 15 years old, addicted to drugs, 17 years old, facing prison. I forgot, I forgot that I was in a bad place and his grace found me, he saved me, he delivered me, he put purpose in my heart. Have you forgotten, Jason? And the moment I, I, I begin to let my worship and my gratitude diminish, I, gotta, I just gotta go back to that place. I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like. Listen, I wanna encourage you with this today. Let your pardon shape your passion and your, your worship towards God. Maybe that's something that God wants to speak to you right now that maybe you have been forgiven, but you just are not expressive at all with your worship and your gratitude towards him. And that can look different for many different people. The last proposition I'd make to you would be this. He goes on to say this in the story. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, this is a weak rendering in the passion translation. I hate to say it. Other translations capture it a little bit better. But Jesus has been talking to Simon face to face and the woman is doing what she's doing, worshiping Jesus at his feet. And at this juncture of the story, Jesus turns his back on the host and turns his face towards the harlot. This is a massive theological gesture that's happening right here. Have you ever been in a conversation in mid sentence and someone turn and start talking to somebody else? Or get, maybe they get distracted and you feel what? You feel disrespected. Jesus in this moment, he's turning his back on religious pride and the assumption that you don't need the grace of God. And he's turning his face towards a broken person that needs a fresh start and a new beginning. And he looks at her and he says this, then Jesus said to the woman, all, again, he calls it sin, all of your sins are forgiven. All the dinner guests said among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith in me, listen to me clear, not the perfume, not what you laid at my feet, not what you did for me, not what you offered me, not your performance. Your faith in me has given you life. Your faith in Jesus, the Messiah has given you life. Now 
you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. Shalom, wholeness. You don't have to live broken anymore. Because of your faith in me, walk in wholeness and fullness of life. I want to finish this way. I had a story I was going to share, but I'm out of time. It was a good story. I'll share it next time. There's some of you that made a decision last weekend to commit your life to Jesus. You had an encounter with Jesus. Some of you, you've, maybe it's been this year, you've had an encounter with Jesus. And, and for you, I think you need to know, like, the next step is what Pastor Brian and Lauren talked about. That baptism is this public display of affection and devotion. Now, here's the thing. That takes courage. I'm not going to lie to you. It takes courage. But think about this woman. How much courage did it take her to walk into that space? Uninvited, unwanted. Listen, you've been invited and you're wanted. That makes it a lot easier. We've already eliminated some obstacles and we have shorts and a shirt and a towel. You are wanted. I just want to, I want to encourage you. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus and you've never been water baptized, go public like that woman did. Go public. I'm going public. I belong to Jesus. I'm going to walk in the ways of peace. I've been forgiven. I've put my faith in Jesus. There's no turning back. If that's you today, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Or maybe, maybe you didn't come prepared at all. Or maybe right now you've sent something. You're not a follower of Jesus. You've never had your sins forgiven. You've never had that fresh start, new beginning. But you feel something. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit of God saying, I love you. I've got a plan for you. I've got peace for you. I've got grace for you. I love you just the way you are. I love you so much. I'm not going to leave you the way you are. He's saying, come to me. Come to me. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. I'm going to pray over you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Right now, just ask the Holy Spirit, say, what are you speaking to me? What are you speaking to me in this moment? Holy Spirit, speak to me. For some of you, it's that you need to be reminded of the grace of God in your own life so that you can extend that grace to other people. For some of you, it's you felt a little conviction about that religious pride stuff like you've maybe felt that in your heart and you've been judgmental towards other people. Maybe today the Holy Spirit just wants to soften your heart towards people. Remind you that you don't know people's story and they just need grace. They need love. They need mercy. If we're going to be guilty of anything, let's be guilty of grace, church. And for some of you, it's this. You want to, you gotta, you want to commit your life to Jesus. You want a fresh start. Well, the Bible says this, that if we confess our sin to, to him, to Jesus, that he's faithful to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. See, the scriptures say that Jesus, he's the son of God. He laid his life down on a cross to pay for the penalty of our sin. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death. See, Jesus died so that we can live and that he became sin so that you and I, we might in him become the righteousness of God. That means have right standing with him. And so today you can have forgiveness of your sins, a fresh start and a new beginning, an encounter with the risen savior, Jesus Christ. If that's you, I just want you to lift up your hand. I'm not gonna embarrass you. No one's looking around, but if that's you, you say, I need Jesus. I need him today. I wanna make a conscious decision to give my life to Jesus. Anyone in here today, you say, I need Jesus in my life. I need Jesus. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna give my life to Jesus. Can we just pray this? Maybe you raised your hand. Maybe you didn't raise your hand. 
Just say the simple prayer. Say, Jesus, I need you. And today I give my life to you. I put my faith in you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I choose to follow you all the days of my life. I give you my life. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, church, could we clap our hands and celebrate people that prayed? Love you, church. If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com slash prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at queencitypeople or visit queencitypeople.com.